Be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. This is the Olivet Discourse, as it's often called. Um, It extends all the way through the end of chapter 26. So three full chapters. Uh, It is Jesus' response to the question that the disciples asked in verse 3 of chapter 24. Uh, after Jesus had said, when they were looking at the temple and all the buildings in the temple complex, that not one stone was going to be left upon another. And the disciples asked in verse 3, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And uh, the next three chapters is essentially Jesus answering that question, although, as I'll point out in a moment, not in exactly the way the disciples um, uh, we're expecting, uh, because of the way they asked a question, but I'll get to that in a little bit. We're going to start in, I'm going to read the passage that we looked at last week. We're going to start in verse, I'll tell you what, we're just going to start in verse 3 again. Yeah, we're going to start in verse 3. We're going to read all the way to verse 41. So, hang on to your hats. But this is the word of the Lord. Uh, listen reverently to it. So again, verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Referencing his previous comment about one stone not being left upon another. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time many will fall away and be delivered up, one, will deliver up one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. 
For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, or ever shall be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead many, if possible, so as to, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or, Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too. When you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And here's the text for today, starting in verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this word. Uh, that you have providentially brought to us today. Uh, We ask that you would give grace to me uh, as I seek to uh, faithfully expound its meaning to your people. Please give grace to all of us as we hear this word expounded. We pray that we would respond in the uh, way that you would have us respond to it, Uh, a way that is uh, in which faith uh, is, uh, is forthcoming from us and in which Obedience is forthcoming from us as well as an expression of our love for you 
and for what you have done for us in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, have you ever been... Um, uh, I know if you're like my children, you, you like fruit. You like to eat fruit. Uh, and uh, probably all different kinds of fruit. Uh, you maybe have your favorite or something. But you know, some fruit comes to us sometimes, uh, especially uh, in the fall. I'm thinking of apples now. Uh, but it doesn't have to be just apples. Fruit can come to us in, in bunches where you have a lot of fruit. Like apples might come in a, in a half bushel uh, a basket. Half bushel is about that big, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Am I right, Kyle? Okay. Anyway, it's, it's about, it's a bigger thing. Might have, may, might have 30 or 40 or 50 apples in it. Um, you get grapes in clusters, so you might, uh, your mom might get a, maybe there was a sale at the store, and there's a cluster of grapes, and there's a whole bunch, and she puts it in a big bowl on the table, and that sort of thing. Uh, but sometimes what happens is fruit doesn't always get eaten as quickly as it needs to get eaten. And what happens when, when it doesn't get eaten quickly enough is some fruit starts to spoil, right? And maybe you have done this, uh, maybe you haven't, but if you haven't, just imagine this. Uh, but maybe you have done it, where you've um, had some things, um, f- fruit where some of the fruit was still good and some of it was rotting. And so maybe your mom or your dad said, hey, would you please pick out the bad apples that are uh, in, in that half bushel there and, and throw those away uh, and leave the, leave the good apples so that we, you know, uh, in, in the bushel, so that the bad apples don't, don't cause the good apples to rot uh, too quickly, or rot, rot rather. Prematurely. And so you pull out, oh, okay, that's got a spot, and you toss it away, and so on and so forth. Or grapes. I just was eating some grapes, uh, was it yesterday or the day before? And uh, some of the grapes were good, and some of them were not good. And so I'm picking off bad grapes and tossed them in the, in the sink or the garbage can. I can't remember which. Um, sometimes we do that because we have to separate the good from the bad. Well, kids... Um, when Jesus returns in glory, part of what he's going to do is separate the good from the bad with respect to people. Now, before you misunderstand what I mean by good, I don't mean that God judges us uh, and takes us to heaven on the basis of how good we've been. That's not true at all. Uh, if If we have to earn our way into heaven... We have to, first of all, not be conceived in sin, which we all are. And we have to perfectly obey in thought, word, and deed every day of our life all the way until the very end of our life. That's the only way we could earn our way into heaven. So none of us get into heaven on the basis of our good works. However, for those who are Christians, who have been forgiven by God because they've trusted in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, there is a sense in which, in the eyes of God, we are good. We are righteous. We are blameless uh, before before God because God views us in Christ uh, as, as united to Jesus who was blameless and is blameless. And we are seen in Jesus by God after we become Christians. And so God, um, uh, God loves us and forgives us for the sake of what Christ did um, uh, on the cross and in his life as well. But my point is, is that there's a sense in which the Christian is good, even though he's not perfect. Um, he is good. He is righteous. And so, the Christian and the non-Christian 
as we're going to see here in this text, uh, the third point, God is going to one day, because you know in the church, kids, there are, there are unbelievers in the church. Now, hopefully in this church there aren't too many, uh, if any, uh, but there are wheat and tares in the church at large. There always have been. And God's going to separate the wheat and the tares uh, in the final day when he returns in, to judge the world. And this passage that we're looking at, starting in verse uh, 36, uh, is about that second coming. And one of the things that we're going to learn here, and I'm going to give you more details in a little bit, is about that separation of the uh, Christian people from the non-Christian people. And we're going to talk uh, about that, but that's uh, coming up uh, a little bit later in the sermon. You may recall, and if you weren't uh, here, uh, I'll give you kind of a synopsis. I already started a little bit before I read the passage. The disciples wanted to know when the destruction of Jerusalem, and particularly of the temple that uh, had just been spoken of by Jesus, when that was going to occur, and what would be the sign that would indicate that that destruction of Jerusalem was at hand, was about to take place. Um, they assumed that there would be some kind of a sign that would say, okay, the, the, the big event is here, or about to, is about to, uh, uh, to happen. Now, when they were thinking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and where they, when they were asking their question in verse 3, they made two assumptions, at least. Uh, one of those assumptions was correct, one of them was incorrect. So the correct assumption that they made, was they assumed rightly that the end of human history would be brought about by the return of Jesus as the victorious Messiah. They believed that. And that was built into their thinking as they asked the question. The end of the age, Jesus is going to return uh, at the end of human history. uh, And, uh, yeah, that was part of what they were asking about. But what they were, and that was correct. But What was incorrect about their assumption was, and we glean this by comparing, by the way, Mark and Luke's version of their question with Matthew's version, but what they did not get right was they assumed that the temple's destruction, the Jerusalem temple's destruction, was going to occur at the end of the ages. With Jesus returning bodily as judge to bring in the new heavens and the new earth and destroy the temple uh, that they were staring at on the other side uh, of the Kidron Valley. They were on the Mount of Olives, which is a little bit higher than the Temple Mount is, and they were looking down on the temple complex. Almost certainly they were looking at it when they asked that question of Jesus. So, they got that thing wrong. Now, Jesus, when he answers their question that they ask he actually addresses two different issues in this Olivet Discourse. Okay, So I'm going to remind you of what we've looked at so far. He speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple and the sign that will immediately precede that catastrophic event. And he does this in verses 15 through 35. We looked at that last week. He's talking about the Jerusalem temple of that day, not some future of Jerusalem temple that's going to be built uh, where the Dome of the Rock is, that is not the case. That is not uh, biblical. Um, It's a well-meaning mistake on the part of many Christians, but I I believe it's unbiblical. Um, But he talks about the destruction of the Jerusalem and its temple in verses 15 through 35. 
But he also, secondly, discusses his own bodily return to earth in judgment as judge at the end of the ages. Now, in verses 4 through 14, we looked at this a couple weeks back, Jesus identified there in that section of the discourse recurring, distressing events which would not, I repeat, not signal his imminent return to earth in glory. The nation will rise, nation rising against nation, uh, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, persecution, and so on. He's saying there, those, these are things that are not going to be signs of my imminent return. They're going to happen throughout New Testament history, in other words. Um, and you may recall though, that, uh, so, so in verses 1 through 14, he's, he's not talking about the end. He's talking about what's going to happen in the interadvental period. We're going to call it that throughout that period. But then you may recall that there was some parenthetical material about Jesus' second coming. It was a parenthesis that Jesus included in his discussion of the temple's destruction. So the temple's destruction is described in verses 15 all the way through verse 35. But in verses 27 through 31, there's kind of a a parenthesis, and he does it for a reason. But in that parenthesis, Jesus uh, he uh, includes that that parenthesis in order to contrast his his own unmistakably and universally visible return at the end of the ages. He he's trying to contrast that with the secret, unobserved return of the false messiahs that is described in verse 26. That's why the word for there is in verse 27. Okay? Um, and that's what he's, that's why he has that brief commentary, if you will, on the second coming there, although the, the greater section is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, I will be referring back to this parenthetical content, uh, content uh, in verses 27 through 31 several times in the sermon, especially toward the latter part of the sermon. So I'm going to refer back to that. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, in addition to, the, because it's re- related to the text that we're looking at today primarily, which is verses 36 to 41. Okay, that's all by way of introduction. Three points, relatively brief, uh, hang with me, that we learn in this passage. First, the day and hour of Christ's bodily return to earth and glory is known by no one other than the Father, God the Father, at the time of the, uh, Jesus, when Jesus spoke these words. The day and hour of Christ's bodily return is known to no one other than God the Father, or was known to no one other than God the Father. Secondly, we're going to look, see, and this is in verses 37 through 39, that the timing of Christ's bodily return to earth and glory will be unexpected when it happens. And then finally, in verses 40 through 41, we're going to see the result of Jesus' bodily return to earth in glory, that it will, uh, the result of it will be a separation of the elect from the reprobate, a permanent separation. Okay, one at a time. So first, the day and hour of Christ's bodily return to earth is known or was known at the time of the, when Jesus was speaking this by no one other than God the Father. Verse 36 makes that point eloquently. Far too many people ignore this verse. Um, I'll get to that in a little bit. But of that day and hour, no one knows. 
Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Which was true when Jesus spoke those words on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. Notice, no one, and this certainly means no human being, is going to know the day or the hour of Christ's return. This is confirmed by what Jesus said to his apostles. If he was ever going to tell somebody, if any humans were ever going to know, it was going to be the apostles. But what do we read in Acts chapter 1, verses um, 6 and 7? Jesus says this. So, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And they're thinking here, they're, they're confused about, Anyway, I won't get into all that. But note, this is the part that's important. His response in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Which included, uh, and was uh, whether they realized it or not, was part of their question when Jesus returns in glory. You're not going to know. Nobody's going to know. You disciples aren't going to know, who are now apostles at this point. And nobody else is either. And verse 36 makes that point in our text. Nor, not only no human being, uh, mere human being, but nor are the angelic hosts going to know. Even though, as Matthew 18.10 makes clear, even though the angelic hosts, the angels, stand in very close relationship to God. I'll read that briefly since it's in Matthew and doesn't require a whole lot of turning. Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus said this. Um, he said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you, and here's the important part for our discussion today, for, you, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of God who is in heaven. The angels stand in very close proximity to the throne, you see. And yet they don't know. Uh, and they're not, they don't know even though they are also intimately associated with the events that will take place at the time of the second coming. Verse 31 of Matthew 24. And he will send forth his angels with, great, with a great trumpet. Uh, and they will gather, they the angels, will gather together as elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to another. They're going to be uh, central to what goes on in the second coming, but they don't know when it is. Okay? No human being. No angel. And not even was it known to Jesus when he spoke these words. That is to say, not to his human nature. Jesus is one person in two, as our catechism says, in two distinct natures and one person forever. Jesus is, was, and is, and always will be fully God and fully man. Human nature, divine nature. Okay? It is un- and, and in his human nature, on this occasion, when he was speaking to the, to the disciples, his human nature did not know when he was going to return at the end of the age. And it is unbiblical. And indeed, it is, it is heretical to say that the human nature of Jesus was all-knowing during his time here upon the earth. Now, you can make an argument 
that maybe things are different now that he's in heaven. Uh, but certainly when he was here on earth, his human nature was not omniscient. You're not omniscient, are you? I'm certainly not. He was fully human, just like we are. He did his human nature in in itself, uh, in its constitution, is was not and is not omniscient. It's heretical to say that. Now, it may be a, a forgivable heresy, but it's it's wrong. It's dead wrong. And it is only Jesus' divine nature that was and is all-knowing. Now, having said that, there were times during Jesus' earthly ministry when his divine nature, how should we say, informed his human nature of some upcoming event that hadn't happened yet. Think of when Jesus told Peter just prior to his arrest, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you have denied me three times. He knew. Why? Because his divine nature, if you will, if I can put it this way, informed his humanity that that was the case. Uh, But when Jesus spoke the words recorded here in the Olivet Discourse in verse 36, when he spoke those words, his human nature was not so apprised of that future event in terms of its timing. Now, this is important. Jesus is one person, not two. He has two natures, but he is one of the three divine persons. He is one person, but two natures. His two natures may not be separated. This It's called the... Um, uh, the uh, oh dear, I just drew a blank. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll, t- I'll come up with it in a minute. The uh, hypostatic union. There we go. The hypostatic union uh, between the divine and the human. It's utterly unfathomable. Don't even try. But it's a fact. It's biblical. Um, we can't separate the human nature and the divine nature. I realize this text kind of makes you go, but it seems like don't go there. Okay, but. They must be distinguished. You can't have a collapsing of the human nature of Jesus into his divine nature in such a way that the human nature ceases to effectively be. That is an ancient heresy. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one it is now. Um, anyway, it's an ancient heresy uh, that continues but to be a heresy, by the way, even though uh, many years after it was declared to be heretical. Okay, so, so that's what's going on here, and don't, again, we don't, we can't understand it, but we have to affirm these things because the rest of the scripture compels us to affirm what I just affirmed. Okay? But that's the explanation for what's going on in verse 17, uh, 36 rather, at that time when he was speaking that. Like I say, he's in heaven now, his his human nature is in heaven with his divine, uh, in the person of Christ, he's glorified, so things may be different now. Uh, but they, uh, uh, there may be, a, in other words, a perpetual informing of the human nature of everything by the divine nature of Christ. But at any rate, the day, back to our point, the day and hour of Christ's return to earth at, at, at his second coming was known only to, listen to me, the triune God. Now, he says there, the Father alone, right? But here's, we're going to, this is a lot of theology in this sermon. Um, Here's where you have to do good theology. You need to be a theologian. That's not just my responsibility. That's your responsibility too. So, what Jesus must mean when he says 
by the Father alone there. What he must mean, based on what other scriptures teach, um, when he says the Father alone knows that fact, he must mean the triune God as representative, as represented by the Father at this point, because here's why. Each of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because each person is fully God, and each one of the persons is the same in substance with the other two persons, same in essence or substance, all three are fully divine of those persons, that means that God, the triune God, exhibits the characteristic of omniscience, which means all-knowing. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit know everything exhaustively. And so when he says the Father alone there, he's speaking of... He's speaking of the Father as representative of the Trinity, and He now is the God-Man with a human nature speaking these words, and His human nature hasn't been apprised of the day or the hour. But the Trinity, including His, his divine nature, does know. Again, don't ask me to explain that. I can't. But it's true. Um, so, whatever the Father knows making an explanation point on my point. Whatever the Father knows, so too mu- God the Father, so too must God the Holy Spirit, and so too must God the Son. Okay, And yet, again, as I've said, the human nature of the God-man 2,000 years ago when he was making this, uh, uh, speaking these words to his disciples had not been informed of the day or the hour. Okay, I've made that point enough. What are, the, what are some of the implications of, what, of this fact? That nobody knows. The angels that don't know. Human's going to know. Not, and at this point, not even uh, the human nature of Jesus knew. Well, first of all, I hope you can see, it's futile to attempt to predict Jesus' return date, if I can call it that. This is a truth borne out by all the failed attempts over the centuries to pin down a day and predict it. I'm just going to run through this quickly. In 365, uh, AD 65, the French bishop, Hilary of Poitiers, predicted that Jesus would return. He didn't. In 1284, Pope Innocent III predicted he would return. He didn't. In 1525, the Anabaptist minister, Thomas Munzer, predicted his return. He didn't. In 1656, Christopher Columbus, he was dead in 1556, but he predicted when he was alive that 1556 would be the day, or the, the year, It didn't happen. Jesus didn't return. Notice this. In 1697, the Puritan, we are are, uh, admirers of the Puritans. They weren't always right, and this is an example of it. Cotton Mather predicted that Jesus would return in 1697. He didn't. In 1792, the Shakers predicted it. Didn't happen. In October 22nd of 1844, the Adventist founder, William Miller, predicted it didn't happen. In 1914, the Jehovah's Witness founder, Charles Taze Russell, predicted it. didn't happen. In 1972, Herbert W. Armstrong, some of you remember him, predicted it. It didn't happen. He did it a couple other times, too. That was, I think, his first time. Um, No, it was his second time. Anyway, uh, in 1982, Pat Robertson predicted the second coming. didn't happen. Uh, in On March 31st of 1995, and then again in uh, October 21st of 2011, Harold Camping, some of you may remember him, predicted the coming of Christ. Didn't happen. And this is just a small sampling, folks, 
I actually Googled this, and it's like a huge list of folks. Do you see the point? To do what these foolish people, some of them converted and godly, but when they were doing this, were foolish. To do what these foolish people did is not only a waste of time and energy and mental uh, faculty, but it is actually sinful to attempt to predict the date of Jesus' return in glory, in judgment. Why? Because it is tantamount to saying that we don't believe what Jesus said in this verse. Whenever we, meaning we humans, we Christians, whenever we act in a way that is contrary to what God's word teaches, this is God's word teaching something in verse 36, whenever we act like that's not true, we are in effect saying to God, in this case, God the Son, you're a liar. You don't want to do that. I certainly don't want to do that. We must not do that. we got to take it seriously, and we need to obey it uh, and by and act on it. This is a very important point. We need to act on what God's word teaches. i got to move on quickly. Uh, and these two, uh, last two points are, are, are much shorter. Secondly, not only uh, does the day and the hour of Christ's bodily return to earth, uh, not only is it known by no one other than the Father, the timing of uh, Christ's bodily return to earth will be ex- unexpected. It will be, we are told in verse 37, just uh, like the days of Noah, just before his second coming, uh, things will be like they were in Noah's day. What does he mean by that? Let me read the verse, first of all. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. During the time when Noah was building the ark along with his family in preparation for the great flood, he was preaching. Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. He was preaching to people, to anyone who would listen, as he was doing what he was doing, uh, applying pitch and that sort of thing. He was preaching to people who were gathering around making fun of him uh, or gawking at what he was doing, and he was warning them of the coming judgment that God had told him about, and he was urging them to repent and to believe in Jehovah and serve Jehovah, his God. But no one outside of his own family members believed his prophecy about the flood and took his warnings to heart. They just kept right on doing what they had been doing. Verse 38, And as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand, and it goes on. Why did they respond this way to Noah's preaching? Why did it have no effect? Two reasons. One is for sure, and the other one I think is pretty a safe bet too. First of all, because they were spiritually dead. They didn't have new hearts. They were blind, stupid, which is what we all are before we're converted. We don't have a clue about spiritual matters. We can have, we can be Einstein. We can know all sorts of things about, you know, great things about the world and the history and mathematics and engineering and so on. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we're, we're, we, we have the intelligence of a rock before God gives us a new heart. And that was true of these folks who were outside of the ark as, uh, uh, who, who Noah preached to. But the second reason, and this is, um, almost certainly the case, um, I'm going to say certainly, almost certainly, is because 
they saw no visible evidence that would lead them to believe that Noah might be onto something. No signs that would cause them to expect that a a cataclysmic worldwide flood was in fact just around the corner. The sun was shining. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, I'm guessing at that. But that regularly happened in that part of the world because it was, uh, it's a fairly arid part of the world uh, where uh, he was building his ark, uh, almost certainly. They didn't see anything. Water, what water? Rain, what rain? Floods, what floods? And so they scoffed and ignored the preacher of righteousness of that day. Through whom Jesus, by the way, if you look at uh, the text in uh, in uh, Peter's uh, letter, Jesus was speaking through him. Those who are alive at the time of the second coming won't be expecting that apocalyptic event either. The world will be chugging along, um, just as it always has, until just before Jesus returns in glory. Then, moments before his return, those alive on the earth in that day will witness what we read about back in verses 29 and 30. I'll read it again. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Just before, that's what's going to happen. And it's important to note something here. It's important to note that these just-described astronomical perturbations, that's what, um, that's what uh, R.C. Sproul refers to them as, astronomical perturbations, how's that? Um, uh, just before, uh, uh, the, these, these signs that I just read of in verses 29 through, uh, through 30, uh, it's important to note that they are not events that will in, significantly, in terms of temporally, in any significant way, temporally, precede Jesus' return in glory and therefore could be used to predict the day or the hour. This is just a very, this is just, if you will, moments or, or uh, minutes. I'm not sure what it, I have no idea, but it's, 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 it's not, it's not really classified like a sign that gives you some time to do something before the thing that's signified happens. Now, these cosmic upheavals, that's a better way to describe what we read in verses uh, 29 to 30, these cosmic upheavals are essentially going to, if I can put it this way, attend Jesus' second coming as concomitants of that coming. It just means attend the coming of Christ. Phenomenon which are of a piece with the second coming not distinct from it in any uh, significant way in terms of time. They will, these events, the, the sun being darkened, not giving its light, the, uh, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, and the stars falling from the sky, um, uh, they will be equivalent, if you will, to the black storm clouds that gathered overhead in Noah's day shortly after God closed the door of the ark. It's too late to respond at that point, because it's just about to happen. In effect, it already is. Um, It's not going to be expected by the people of that day. 
Shortly after the just-referenced cosmic upheavals are seen, Jesus will return in glory and power for all to see. Verse 30. And then the sign, which is the Son of Man, the sign there is not uh, a separate a sign that's separate from the Son of Man. Uh, the, the Greek can be read there. And then the sign, that is the Son of Man, will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and glory. So, it's going to be unexpected in the day when it happens. And I think I told you last week, I think verse 14 indicates that it's going to be some time before Jesus returns to earth. But in the time when it does, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be unexpected by those that are uh, alive on the earth. And then thirdly and finally, and briefly, verses 40 and 41 speak of the result. And I, I alluded to this with, when I was speaking with the children at the front end. The result of Christ's bodily return to earth will be a separation, an eternal separation of the elect from the reprobate. Elect are those who are chosen to be forgiven by God uh, in eternity past and are united to Christ by him during the course of their life. And the reprobate are those who are passed over, who get what they deserve uh, and burn in hell for eternity. And um, that separation is going to occur, and it's described in verses 40 and 41. I'll read it. Therefore, be on the alert. No, I'm sorry. I've got the wrong. Where am I here? Uh, two women... Verse, it's verse 40 and 41. There we go. Um, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken. I'll explain that in a moment. And one will be left. Two women will be get, uh, grinding at the mill. One will be taken. And one will be left. The taking here is being taken, uh, I, I take it to mean, by the angels, as described in that verse 31 that I read a little bit ago. And he uh, will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather, that's the taking, they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Perhaps, by the way, and this is a little speculative, but I think it's uh, reasonable, perhaps they will be taken away by the angels from the earth temporarily in order to avoid being incinerated by uh, God's promised destruction of the old earth, which is what we're on right now. God promised that in the end of uh, in Second Peter. It's going to be, the elements are going to be consumed, burned up with intense heat, right? This place is going to be vaporized uh, as it stands now, although it's going to be remade. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, and then, well, we'll get to it now. Uh, and then, as, as they are taken away, is that, that during that, whatever that is, interval or whatever, then those people, the, those who are united to Christ, whom God has chosen to be objects of his love and his forgiveness and are spiritually united to Christ because of that, they will be, uh, they will have their bodies, remember these are the people that are still alive, not in the grave, but the people in the grave will too, will have their bodies glorified. Their bodies will be glorified, sin will be removed from them, and that will be in preparation for taking up residence um, before Christ's throne in the new heavens and the new earth. That may be what, what this idea of being taken uh, is a reference to. Uh, I, I think it's reasonable. Uh, it's a little speculative, but I think it's a reasonable speculation that that's what the taking will involve that's described there in verses 40 and 41. That's true. So that's the people whom Christ has forgiven, whom God has forgiven because they've they've been united to Christ by trusting in him alone to save them. But then... There are those whom God did not elect to forgive and to be reconciled to him. They will be carted off at this point. 
and it's not described here, it's just described what happens to the elect person, but the implication is that uh, those that are left will be carted off to the place of eternal torment, otherwise known as hell. That's where you will go one day, either when Christ returns or when you die, if, hope you were dying for that if, I hope, if you have not put your sole trust in Jesus Christ to save you, from the hell that you and I and we all deserve. We all deserve to uh, suffer eternity, God's wrath, for our sins. One sin earns us that. We've all committed countless sins. And uh, that is what we deserve, but will not get if we put our trust in Jesus alone to save us from that wrath that would otherwise come to us justly. Because Jesus himself, you see, takes the wrath he did it on the cross. Takes the punishment that our sins deserve, the, our being all, all those who he uh, died for, who, who will be spiritually united to him. He took that punishment and he absorbed it. And then by his righteousness, his perfect obedience to God's law, which is credited to the believer, we are made acceptable in God's sight. But it's only by faith that, that, it, that it comes to us as we trust him to do that for us. But if a person does not trust him and takes his or her last breath, hell is where they will go. And that's true before the Day of Judgment, too, is it not? Now, in the Day of Judgment, when Jesus returns in glory, we're talking about people that are alive on the earth. But the very same thing, almost exactly the same thing happens when we die, right? One of two things happen. Spirit, our spirits go to heaven, or our spirits go directly to hell and await the reunion with their body, whether it be in heaven or in hell, that will occur when Jesus comes again and raise the dead uh, and also deal with uh, those who are alive on the earth. You see the point. You need, you need, we all need Christ. We need to trust him, not just as our get-out-of-jail card free, our get-out-of-hell card free, rather, but as our, as, our, um, as our Savior and our King or Lord. If you don't have him as the one for whom you are living, you don't have him as your Savior. Let me say one last thing in closing, and that is these verses do not teach. Verses uh, 40 and 41 as is sometimes suggested, these verses do not teach a secret rapture of believers just prior to the beginning of some supposed seven-year tribulation. Nor do other, any other passage in Scripture. How do we know this? That this particular passage does not teach that? Well, because, of, uh, because the parables that follow, remember this is all part of the discourse all the way through the end of chapter 26, or five, rather. The parables that follow that we're going to look at in subsequent weeks uh, all speak of a clear division. And these all parables all reference the second coming. They all speak of a clear division, not between those who are taken up to heaven and those who are left on earth to be in some tribulation uh, that they go through. But the parables all speak of uh, that the d- division is between those who go to heaven and those who go to hell. Look at just by one, uh, one example, and then we'll close. Chapter 25, verse 46. Um, I'll back up to verse uh, 
back up to verse uh, 35. This is the goats and the sheep, the judgment. Uh, then he will answer them, saying, "Truly I say to you, this is to the this is to the goats." Then uh, then he will answer them, saying, "Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me." And then he says, and here's the point: and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That is the contrast, and that's the contrast that is referenced uh, and alluded to in. Uh, in verses 40 and 41 of the passage that we're looking at today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that you remind us uh, of that all of us, whether it be when you return in glory, Lord Jesus, to earth, or whether when it be when, when we take our last breath before your return, we are all going to face uh, judgment. We are all going to come before uh, the throne. Um, and we will all end up in one of two places, either in heaven or in hell. And you're in both of those places, in hell and your wrath, in heaven and your love and your mercy and grace. Lord, I pray, we pray, that if there's anyone listening to me today, be it here in this room or um, remotely, who does not understand or has not understood prior to this moment in time that, uh, that he or she deserves uh, your punishment for eternity because of his or her rebellion against you. If they, this individual or individuals have not understood this and but have now come to understand this, would you please grant the grace that only you can give to cause such an individual to flee to Jesus, the God-man, the only hope of sinners, to flee to him and him alone uh, for their assurance of being forgiven by you when, when they meet you, actually before, but reaffirmed on that day of judgment. Would you please grant faith, a new heart and faith to such individuals. Lord, for the rest of us who are already objects of your mercy and your grace, would you please help us to be, as subsequent uh, uh, parts of the discourse will point out to be prepared, to live lives prepared to meet our Maker, that we would not be presumptuous about tomorrow, that we would not be um, slothful about uh, living for you each moment of each day. Give us grace to give you our all each day and to be eager to see you return, even if you're not going to return in our lifetime, but still be eager and hopeful that, uh, about seeing you, um, rather than be fearful because we are not ready. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with our final.